I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Super Mario Brothers. Where are we? I got a feeling we're not in Brooklyn no more. They're brothers. They're plumbers. They're on the trail of a kidnapped princess and a mystical meteorite. It's incredible! That gives anyone who possesses it the power to rule the universe. Get me the rock! Come and get it, lizard breath! Must rescue the princess. Luigi! Alien species escaping. And make it safely back. Later, alligator. To our world. Are you alright? Before time runs out. Brothers, this is no game. And welcome to the show, our special guests for this week from the Franchise Killer podcast. And I will let them explain what the hook is there. Hello to David Schmitzer. You know what I love about mud? It's dirty and clean at the same time. <laughs> clean at the same time. <laughs> well, um, David's new wife, Irina Schmitzer. Hey. <laughs> now could you do the Goomba quote? <laughs> and, and Irina's brother and host of the show, Reese Payne. Dance with me. I'll hit you all you like. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, folks, these are all quotes from it. So it is very good to have you guys on here. Uh, David contacted us a few weeks ago just to say hi and see what we could maybe throw together. And I suggested this movie, after a bunch of possibles, as it's kind of a cult favorite, as well as being notoriously reviled and not only killed the possibility of a Super Mario Brothers franchise of movies, but set the tone for video game movies for decades since its release in the summer of 1993 as the first video game adaptation. First of its kind, and studios ensured that they would not learn from the mistakes made during production. Uh, this is why a lot of beef I have with this movie is actually beef with Street Fighter and a couple of the Tomb Raiders, but not Mortal Kombat, which we talked about this year and remains an unabashedly great time. We'll probably talk about that in a bit. I have a different beef with the Resident Evils and Warcraft and Silent Hill, and yes, Uwe Boll directed a smorgasbord of low-grade trash far less enjoyable than this film that made the very concept of video game movies poisonous. But by and large, he was picking up licenses that nobody gave much of a toss about, like Blood Rain and House of the Dead and Alone in the Dark and Postal. But Super Mario Brothers is and was always a big deal. A lot of kids went in expecting one thing and got something very different. And we are here tonight to discuss what they got and why they got it. And the creators have lamented superficial takes on this movie from nitpickers complaining that Luigi didn't have a moustache. 
Well, we are aware that that's not a problem. That's not the problem here, though it is indicative of a greater series of issues. So we're going to reject superficial takes and get right to the heart of this thing. This isn't pedantry. It's an exploration of a weird and twisted and sorry tale that nonetheless makes some people happy. I know a bunch of our listeners like this movie. And when I said I was doing it, everyone was like, oh, yeah, I love it. I'm like, oh, well, it might be a little <laughs> cruel. And that's absolutely fine if you love it. We're going to be having some fun with Super Mario Brothers. I've always found it tiresome and irritating. And with the most <laughs> open, with the most open mind I have ever had this time, I was like, right, man, let me let me see if I can. I'm gonna. We watched all the making of stuff first, so we could really get our heads around it. And we're like, right, so this is the real Super Mario Brothers. And I watched it, and I found it tiresome and irritating more so this time. But at least we can look at the way of this thing. And our guests may not know this, but there is one phrase that we are not allowed to use on this show, School of Movies, a hedge word that gets banded around in substitution of detail, and that is interesting. And by that, I mean we can say it, but we immediately have to say why. So an example, hey, Sharon, what did you think of Super Mario Brothers? It was interesting. <clears throat> why? By default, pretty much everything we cover is interesting in some way, as is everything worth talking about. Our job is to elaborate. So you can say interesting, but I'm going to go, eh, why? So let's do exactly that about this interesting film. And I've formatted this into a series of questions that I'm going to throw out to the group, and anybody can pick them up and run with them. First up is, and this might be kind of in your wheelhouse and your speciality. That's kind of why I picked this one. How much does everyone know about how this film got started? I'm pretty uh, aware of how this got started. I definitely watched a, a good 30-minute video on the making of. It was hectic, to say the least. Yeah. That's, that's all I got so far. I mean, I could, I could dive into it, but how much do you guys want me to roll with it? I, I mean, know. Hectic sounds like another synonym for interesting, interesting. to me. So. <laughs> well, I, I was hoping somebody else my, knew about it would jump off of it, but we'll see. My impression I, I mean, of this was it, it became popular, the game itself, in the late 80s. And mm. so it felt like the film industry was trying to hop on that bandwagon and why don't we make a movie that benefits you, it benefits us. But then I, I guess from what I had seen, the screenplay had been tossed around so much that it devolved into some kind of weird mess of a film. And it's, from my understanding, supposed to be appealing to adults so yes. that the video mm -hmm. game would be more palatable for a larger audience. But yeah, it very much started off yeah, as an adult, uh, a more adult screenplay. And then the, I want to say the directors at some point were you know, locked out of the writing phase mm. and it was given to a couple of other writers and, and they, they got kicked off of it kid friendly, but it, there's still the, the end result is still this odd amalgam of like, Oh, there's some weird references in this movie that are definitely more adult. And then it's also very much a kid's movie. Yeah. I don't question mark. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that it's funny that Nintendo was down for a grittier, Super Mario Brothers movie. They thought it was too big to fail, as I heard tossed around a lot. It's the thing is obviously I, not the case. I don't think Nintendo was really down for where it ended up. No, no, they, not they, at all. They thought it was still going to make money because yeah. the Mario brand is so huge. I think there was a failure to communicate there. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 
<laughs> and I think as well there is a there's a little bit of an air of desperation about it, and mm-hmm. I I suspect that that has to do with movies starting to lose their audiences to a degree that was concerning and losing yeah. them to video games. So, you know, in a in a sort of how can we try and claw some of that audience back sense, well, let's throw out a brand they'll recognise and then they'll come and watch our film. But with no interest in what that brand was, what the game represented, anything to do with actually uh, reproducing the game in any true sense of the word. I mean, just to give you an idea... One of the directors that they approached initially uh, was Harold Ramis, who mm. actually knew the game and liked the game and said, oh, heavens, no. <laughs> yeah. There's a there, there's definitely a lack of faith in the source material. Mm. And we've seen this with it happened with comic book movies first. I feel like it was like, mm-hmm. oh, the kids love this. This will definitely be able to translate, but insert Captain America 1990. Exactly, mm-hmm. I love that movie. It's so terrible, but I love <laughs> Terribly it. Terribly good. Uh, but I, I honestly, and we'll talk about this later, probably. But I do think we will finally be hitting that video game golden age pretty soon here of movies actually properly adapting them to the screen. Mm. Uh, but r- right now, this is this. It's a, a definite, definitive lack of faith in a video game being palatable to mainstream audiences from a cinematic standpoint yeah one one of the things that made us shout was uh one of the writers was uh doing we we read through a whole website that is dedicated to this archaeological dig into what happened with this movie and they interviewed um let's see uh, uh parker bennett uh who who said he wanted from the get-go for this to be like this isn't your daddy's video game and it's like <laughs> right let me stop you there, Parker. It's 1993. Your daddy was in Vietnam at this point. <laughs> he did not play video games. He like maybe your big brother played Pong, uh, yeah. but ultimately, like the kids who grew up with Super Mario Brothers were still only just becoming teenagers. Right. Like, like the, the whole this ain't your mama's. Like the the video games were in their infancy at this point. Yeah. Mm, definitely. I. Th- and that kind of brings up uh, in my mind the issue I had watching this movie was what is the audience? I can't actually mm-hmm. tell what the audience is, and I don't think they could answer that either. The audience well, was themselves. <laughs> they said they. That's actually that is right on the uh, money. Actually, let's come back to that in a sec. I'm put a pin in the audience was themselves. Actually, that's good. Um, they they also said uh, that they they wanted kids to come out. And ask the grown-ups what happened there, and for the grown-ups to have to explain. But if you watch the film, I feel like it's going to be the other way around. Yeah, like, and as you pointed out, the kids are then going to turn around and go, "Oh, that was know. nothing like the game." <laughs> <laughs> so we no, had some uh, similar names. Th- there was a uh, a lowball price offered originally. The um, mm-hmm. one of the produ- there's two producers. One of them, Roland Joffe, and if you watch one of the um, the making of uh, uh, the films. It's it's got that voice that's like you know you know now the new Batman movie it's you know, the, <laughs> you know producer Roland Joffe director of the Killing Fields and it's like you can't you can't show this director talking to Bob Hoskins on set while uh, 
Alan Silvestri music goes, and the narration goes, director of the killing fields. Do you remember the Khmer Rouge and all of those dead Cambodians? It's, it's a harrowing film. To, to invoke it at that point. Like, he'd also done The Mission. So, like, you maybe start with that one because people might not know what The Mission is and it sounds a bit video gamey. It's not. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's Heart of Darkness. It sound, sounds like a last-ditch effort to, like, try and connect yeah. with some sort of audience where it's like, oh, they'll maybe recognize this. It, 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 it'll just pass by in a couple seconds. <laughs> <Doesn't Yeah. matter. laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, Joffe also uh, directed the Demi Moore 1995 version of The Scarlet Letter. And he did mm-hmm. a lot of talking in this... Uh, uh, documentary that we watched from the uh, Second Sight Blu-ray disc, which, by the way, made Super Mario Brothers look amazing. I've never seen it look so good. Um, and the other one who didn't speak was Jake Eberts, and he never turned up. And in fact, I think he died back he in... died in 2012. Yeah, not too long ago. That yeah, would have... Yeah. I believe it was cancer, Yeah, and there wasn't even any um, archival footage of him. And he was the producer of Watership Down, which we did on our show a long time ago, that really violent rabbit movie with just this... Like, where the author said, there is no subtext. And we're like, right, well, we won't look for one then. Fuck it. <laughs> but uh, he... Um, it's about talking rabbits. There's subtext. <laughs> so, Make your job easy, I guess. <laughs> uh, Jake Ebert's also produced This Is Spinal Tap, another show we've done, an absolute classic film. He would one. go on to do Dances With Wolves, so he had prestige there. He'd already done Chariots of Fire, so it's like the British are coming, Oscar prestige. He'd done The Name of the Rose, an absolutely wonderful sort of um, monk mystery, which we saw again just the other day. Just classic movie. And mm-hmm. two very important films to this story. He produced The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, directed by Terry Gilliam, and The Thief and the Cobbler, which is a infamous episode of our right. show. And I got uh, we, we re-listened to our episode on that just to, to get our heads around an even more difficult shoot that lasted decades as opposed to just one horrible year. Um, but that, that colors the studio meddling that get, got reported a lot in this um, documentary. I feel like, and this is just supposition because they just kept saying the, the, the executives, the, the backers, the producers were just, you know, saying, hurry up, make this for kids and make it cheaper, make it cheaper. And you're off the project. And I feel like Jake Ebert's, got so pissed off with the uh, Baron von Munchausen, which uh, obviously was Terry Gilliam's vision, but didn't make money and uh, and actually was a notoriously difficult shoot. And the Thief and the Cobbler, like he was in and out on part of part of the way on that. I think at this point in 1992, Jake Eberts was like, listen, just get it done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably a little bit nervy that it was going to go down that way. Yeah, he, he almost certainly bought into it because, as you guys said, it's too big to fail. It's Super Mario Brothers. How can you go wrong? Well, we'll tell you. <laughs> original version of this was a Wizard of Oz type film written by uh, Jim Genowine, J- uh, Jim Genowine and Tom S. Parker. That was the one that was shipped to Harold Ramis, who went on to direct uh, Groundhog Day in the 90s. This is Egon from Ghostbusters and uh, one of our favorite uh, uh, comedies that no one else likes, Bedazzled. Um, and also, didn't he do Multiplicity? I don't know. Yeah, he's had some ups and downs. But he did direct Analyze This, which is one of the only gangster films I actually like. Mainly because it focuses on repressed anxiety and emotion. 
within a traditionally emotionally cut off and violent context. And unlike The Sopranos, it's over in two hours. Mostly good, though, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I love Harold Ramis' films, and he's sadly missed. But I wish he'd said yes, because he could have made something funny with this. And the idea of a Wizard of Oz version struck everyone as too expensive. So they were like, let's not do that. Let's not have them go to this magical mushroom kingdom and get greeted by a bunch of toads, toadstools. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, we, you've got to go and kill the Bowser. I mean... That's almost exactly how I would say do do your movie because it's been so long since anyone did like a Wizard of Oz style story straight. I'll reserve a whole section at the end for if this was going to be done right in the 90s and now, how would you do it? So that's a question to come up on. So instead they went with a cheaper route of Blade Runner. Yeah, (laughs) they got this set, is it the set designer or the... Um, yeah, the um, the production designer. Production designer of Blade Runner, literally. Yeah. Um, uh, what's his name? Hold on. Uh, 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 David Snyder. Snyder. Yeah. D- Blade Runner, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Ooh, I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, but it looks like Blade Runner when you actually get to like the Cooper Kingdom. Yes. I was just gonna say this this movie kind of has a Bill and Ted energy to it, even though it is not nearly as successful. I just mm-hmm. wanted to piggyback yeah. off that real quick. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, one of the three uh, credited writers, because there were a whole bunch of people who, who sort of contributed to the script, and it kept getting tossed out and started again. Um, but uh, one of them was Ed Solomon, who wrote all three Bill and Ted films, including the most recent one, Face the Music, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. He also Loved wrote it. Men in Black, and he also wrote Charlie's Angels and a, a whole bunch of other stuff. And from the sounds of it, the, the two core writers of this version of the script, um, Parker Bennett and Terry Runt, um, they, they, they were writing their version of it. And then that got taken off them. And from the sounds of it, Ed Solomon had to do a lot of punch up on it to make it more funny, to give it more gags for the kids. And also from the sounds of it, to work in more exposition. Whenever characters' backs were turned, they had to pipe in 80-odd lines that explained the plot. Mm. Part <laughs> there, of the there. problem was that they ended up cutting out or, or getting Ed Solomon to cut out big chunks that were too expensive yeah. to actually film. Or and then, were not interesting enough to the idea of let, let's get these yeah. for kids. Um, and I just said interesting. Well, actually, I will elaborate on that. There was a, at the beginning, there was supposed to be a whole chunk of the movie. Uh, as it stands, it is an hour and 50 odd it's minutes. An hour, and 40, hour 40 minutes. Hour and too like long, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it feels long. But uh, they get to the Mushroom Kingdom in about 23 minutes. There was a whole extra bunch of stuff where, as it transpires, Mario, Mario, that's uh, Bob Hoskins, uh, has inherited the plumber business from their father and has looked after Luigi ever since their parents died. And he kind of doesn't want to be a plumber. So there's that tension there already. They excise that from the final movie, which Mm kind of takes away that whole, like this guy is old enough to be Luigi's dad. Right. He does come off as very much a father figure. I was was saying this to our group earlier. He's like, Mm. I never once thought of him as a brother he's kind of just the guiding hand to luigi he's like hey respect your tools uh (laughs) like that that was the i know you lost them but (laughs) yeah and um do do you know who was originally slated to uh be play mario danny devito (laughs) do you know who got even closer sorry i didn't know go ahead uh tom hanks he was actually signed on to play 
no, he was signed on to play Mario. But I remember, <laughs> like, I've I've only seen this movie, well, now three times in my life, and probably will try to keep myself from watching it again. But I, I'm pretty sure the first time I watched it, I was a kid, and years later, I was convinced. I had convinced myself that Danny DeVito was in this movie. <laughs> and then I watched it a second time. I was like, wait a minute. That's not Danny DeVito. <laughs> I've been lied to. <laughs> no, it's well, Bob Hoskins saying... with the best Boston, but the best Brooklyn accent you've ever heard. Yeah. So what you're saying, Irina, is that you created a better movie in your head. <laughs> I think a lot of people did that uh, with this movie. Oh my gosh. That said, I, I do want to give Bob Hoskins just a little bit of credit. I think oh, yeah. out of the performances in this movie, he he even though behind the scenes he he didn't care, he was drunk all the time. <laughs> Do you want a libation? I still enjoyed what he was putting out. Wasn't it John Leguizamo that was talking about him, you know, going back to his normal accent and was, I I, I don't even want to try to butcher it with you guys on here, but it was like, bloody sodden, what it, and I was like, what was that? (laughs) Please butcher it. I do love it. Oh, I did it. definitely leans Dick Van Dyke for that. Oh, my goodness. It, he was very um, giving in the uh, interviews. Like He didn't have to turn up for that uh, sort of thing. But he was talking about it with a fondness and how he hung out with Hoskins. But from the sounds of it, it was very much like he was in awe of this guy who was in The Long Good Friday. Like, he'd been acting for a long time. And um, they they would hang out and, as you say, get drunk. And um, there was more of a case of, uh, like just kind of escape from the the horrors of daily shooting to actually uh, get on, you know, behind the scenes and just sort of like, you know, as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and and as a result of this, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Like one of them broke a leg and one of them broke an arm. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Um, Actually, from the sounds of it, John Leguizamo broke Bob Hoskins. He said hand, Hoskins said finger, but it was, uh, they were in the Mario truck and Hoskins was standing beside the door. And then he was, uh, Leguizamo was trying to impress him and just like gunned on the accelerator and the van (laughs) lurched forward and that sliding door just went funk (laughs) on Hoskins' hand. Uh, Let me impress the seasoned actor. (laughs) I'm going to in. Jeez. Well, it it did not impress Bob Hoskins, and no. he he later on said in uh, magazines he kept he kept his temper on set, unlike certain mm. people. But um, he said later that it was the worst thing he'd ever done, his biggest regret, and he he, he just wished that the film had never been made. Mm. And um, he was particularly unkind uh, to the directors Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, uh, who were the creators of Max Headroom. And there's this weird kind of series of crossovers in this film. If you remember Back to the Future Part 2, when they go to the Cafe 80s, just before that, Marty goes past the the souvenir shop for 80s stuff, and there's a Roger Rabbit doll in the window, because Robert Zemeckis also directed Who Framed Roger Rabbit the year beforehand, um, starring Bob Hoskins. And uh, Alan Silvestri scored Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future 2. And then he goes to the Cafe 80s and it's always morning in America, even in the afternoon at noon. And it's Reagan doing Max Headroom. And like triple on weirdness. The two writers who ended up being credited the most for this, that's... um, uh, Parker Bennett, the surviving writer, and unfortunately Terry Runt died just a year afterwards in 1994. They were like a writing team, and they they barely wrote like well, uh, 
Parker barely wrote anything afterwards. I think he's credited for some Sweet Valley High episodes. So this was like the beginning and end of his writing career. Mm. He didn't even get a redemption. Nope. And that is deeply sad. Except they also did some writing and some punch up on the script for The Thief and the Cobbler that we mentioned earlier. This (laughs) notorious, like, you know, failed animation project. I mean, it may be that they were brought on because of the producer. I was going to say, Jake Eberts, I would also say it's almost certain that it was Jake Eberts who suggested Terry Gilliam to fill in on The Thief and the Cobbler. Yeah. Or or the, um, uh, the producer who had already produced. Um, Baron Munchausen. Mm. Uh, that's uh, uh, Jake Ebert. Like so um, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel had created Max Headroom and done little else. And they had, from the sounds of it, an idea for what if an asteroid hit planet Earth and you know that's what killed the dinosaurs. And if you remember back in 1993, there was a lot of like thinking about how the dinosaurs d- uh, died out because Jurassic Park launched that summer. And so everyone was thinking dinosaurs. So it would almost feel like Mario, especially with Yoshi, Yoshi, uh, it was like a, 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 a quick cash grab to try and cash in on some of that dinosaur stuff that um, Jurassic Park was about to be reaping. But it came out several months beforehand, and it seems almost like they were unaware that Jurassic Park was going to hit so big at that point. Mm, that wouldn't surprise I, me I, in the slightest. Do you think I read somewhere, and I'm sorry I don't have the source directly in front of me, but I I think the production designer actually was aware that Jurassic Park was coming out, so they intentionally kind of deviated the the creative the, the look of the dinosaurs. Even though I I think Yoshi oh, definitely still looks like uh, the T Rex like or a, something. A Jurassic Park reject. <laughs> <laughs> that, they just the, um, him they over. scraped him off the set. <laughs> Yoshi was uh, designed by um, Patrick Totopoulos, who went on to do yes, uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Have you guys done that yet? No. Yeah, In terms of a franchise yeah. killer. It's, it's, on, a, it's, it's on our list. Yeah, yeah. go for it. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the, he then went on to do a whole lot of like raptor baiting mini Zillas in in the sort of the, the third act of that movie that were chasing around yeah. uh, Matthew Broderick and company. Um, but I, like, I actually really like the Yoshi puppet. He's kind of adorable. So like when he gets stabbed in the neck with a spike, I was like, oh, God, no. Okay. That was that's the last the more second. I've felt in this movie from anything that's been portrayed on screen. That moment, I was like, oh, no, not Yoshi. I don't know. When they had the Goombas on there, it, it had me going, especially when they oh, got to the dancing don't scene. Try. Don't oh, even yeah. try, dude. Let's do some waltzing with some Goombas. So from the sounds of it, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel had this idea for what if this meteorite split the worlds into two dimensions and then there's they're hunting for the piece of meteorite that will recombine the two versions of earth and they had that idea before they even got offered this mario movie and they wrapped mario around that i think it must have made sense in the meeting like oh there's dinosaurs in this game right i mean that cooper guy looks like a dinosaur so how could this have happened well 
we've got an idea. And so they were probably so behind it that they actually kind of convinced people to let them handle it. It does actually make sense if you think about the fact that their background, although yes, they were most well known for being the creators of Max Headroom, but their background was in commercials. Mm. So they will have had portfolios of ideas that you then just slot in whichever brand you're being asked to promote. So yeah. to them, this probably wouldn't have been that much different from that. Here's our idea. Here's the video game that you want to put out there in the form of a movie. So how do we do dovetail that into what we've mm. already got. And exactly as you said, they ended up getting uh, tossed off the movie uh, really close to the end, and it was finished by its technical crew, mm. which is they were it, credited as directors, though, weren't they? They were still, but <laughs> do you remember? Do you know? Do you remember the end credits? The first credit that comes up, folks. Uh no. It's almost unreal by Roxette. It is so weird for a movie to fade to black and then go almost unreal by Roxette and not say. <laughs> a movie by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel or a movie produced by Roland Joffe or starring like it it, it, it's, it it credits the music before the cast I'm so surprised That's I didn't so notice strange. that to be honest yeah. I would have done the same thing I mean start I'm with the strong sure points once the movie was over I immediately turned it yeah, it's definitely one of those fade to black like, oh. it's over off button it's over what did Go. I just watch although I did like slip in for the the in credit scene, this one has one. It's weird. Mm. Oh, there oh, yeah, is. Yeah, it's got, it's got a, a stinger where Thanos is coming to collect his Infinity Gem. Exactly. Uh, it's got yeah. two stingers, technically, kind of. That uh, last shard. Yeah. <laughs> the fifth one. The, the Cooper Brothers. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, they yeah they they get the visit from a Japanese businessman. One of our favorite tropes. Just the uh, ah, <laughs> that was a thing in like the eighties and nineties. They were like the idea of everyone in England who was running a business or in America trying to impress Japan. I suppose it's yeah. positive racism. It's it Question. was. I think it's it's referencing a lot of uh, Japanese investment mm. that went went on with um, businesses that were. Yeah failing or struggling. But obviously in this case, they had had to, this is how the whole thing started. They had to impress a Japanese businessman mm -hmm. to get the license and lowballed them and pay the least amount for this license. <laughs> but that's the thing. This movie was made by the lowest bidders. They started wrong. Like they, yeah. they didn't say, we love Super Mario Brothers. We really want to bring the kids something that they can be thrilled at. They went, we've got loads of great ideas. It's too big to fail you know, we'll, we will give you half as much as you've just asked us for. And rather than going, get out of my office, Mr. <laughs> Nintendo, or whatever the uh, uh, president at the time was, I would, I did want to say Satoru Uwata, but probably not. That's, I know that's not who they had okay. the negotiation with, but I can't remember mm. who it was. And it definitely wasn't Shigeru Miyamoto who would have gone, ah, no, I'm so sorry, but you sound like you don't know what Super Mario Brothers is. And they didn't. <laughs> at one point, they, actually, they, they brought in... Oh, sorry, thank you. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. They brought in an NES to give to the writers so that they could play it. And, right. Yep. I heard they played it for one day, like, one of the writers played it for one day and wrote the script based off that information. <laughs> yes, I heard that too. I also heard that the uh, script was rushed to completion in 10 days because they had to start shooting. And again, like just rushing this thing, not really knowing what they were doing, all of these decisions and, and all of these constrictions and restrictions all kind of fed into each, into this massive crunch that the movie itself was. Something so, I, I find kind of funny, sorry, uh, uh, it's funny that they have to rush to the production start date, but I also read that this movie went like weeks longer in its shooting. Like it, yeah. it just had a really extended period of time. And I'm like, maybe that would have been 
a lot quicker if you had planned to maybe push the start date a week, you know, get your yeah. ducks in a line. That uh, <laughs> seemed to be a big element of of what fundamentally went wrong. If you were going to change one thing, it was in the planning stages because from the sounds of things, they were script writing bits and then going off and filming those bits and then script writing more bits that actually didn't fit with the bits that they'd done yesterday because mm. the directors were constantly wanting to change things. Yeah. So they ended up with all of this footage and, um, and props and pages of, of script and dialogue that they didn't, mm need anymore mm. and weren't they so doing hourly script would changes ever, yeah nobody would would like stick to one thing so it just kept dragging and dragging and dragging and if you watch the film itself it, it it's composed of bits like there's whole mm -hmm. scenes that go by and you're like what what actually happened there like the bit where it cuts to i think iggy and spike in the quarry in that really dangerous looking vehicle uh, that right. looks like it might tip over and crush and kill you they're just sort of <laughs> driving around in a circle then they go over a cliff and that's a bit like yeah. that, that's a scene, and it's like, what did that even accomplish? I yeah, wonder if pretty that's good <laughs> to referencing Mario Kart. Maybe well, that that uh, com combined with the extremely dangerous looking police car race. Let's circle back around to the production woes in a bit. We need to talk about the film itself now, especially yeah. bear in mind that many of our listeners might not have seen it. Um, we've already mentioned sort of the Mario uh, being kind of a fatherly brother to Luigi. Um, but what happens in this thing? Who are the characters and what are they doing? Anyone can take this one. So they're plumbers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now they're they're bankrupt plumbers, right? I, I feel like the intention of this is that they are, you know, it's a family business, but they're getting pushed aside by this almost corporate plumber business. That, Scapelli. Yeah, Scapelli. <laughs> they're yeah. always there first. They always get the job done. They're basically lauded as the best maybe they're just a better town, plumbing service <laughs> which is to imply that the when these people need plumbing they're like first serve boys get on <laughs> as long as you can get there on time i love that it it makes me think there's this emergency hotline for plumbers where it's like yeah whatever which whatever you, you gets here first like, <laughs> you've got the job i just like that luigi's like I got a good feeling. Sea turtles, man. Let's go down this side alley. I have no <laughs> idea where it goes, but I have a good feeling about it. And then they get there on time. But too bad. Scapelli's there. Yeah. Beat him. Yeah, but. Scapelli was uh, uh, apparently a much bigger part of it. Like he was going to be a real um, uh, heel to these uh, guys to begin with. And then he kind of ends up being like a, an instigating um, character that gets Daisy moving from like the Princess Daisy is a archaeologist who is working on a dig site in new york is that right yeah. mm -hmm. they, she's what are a student i think yeah it was on they were doing some plumbing in right. in the bronx and then they somehow discovered dinosaur bones and all of a sudden the college had to get involved man right. gotta stop it yeah. so they're digging down and, and apparently under the surface they found a a gateway to another world but i don't think anyone's actually found it yet like the mario and luigi find it because they because daisy gets kidnapped and, and they chase her and then they find this horrible 90s cgi wall yeah so yeah. i i seem to remember that the reason it was found was because scapelli's men were down there trying mm. to sabotage something but yeah. end up opening some chamber while also uh wearing their scapelli suits yep <laughs> yep yep don't want to incriminate ourselves we're just running out of here while water's exploding we got scapelli on our back <laughs> They kind of go on a date first before all this happens. Like Lu Luigi sees 
Daisy in the street and starts. It's either somewhere between um, Romeo and Juliet, which, by the way, John Leguizamo was in and was pretty damn good as Tybalt. Uh, and he like he said, my heart has stopped for swear at sight, for I never saw true beauty till this night. Uh, you know, fellas, he's like you staring like at Daisy and mouth breathing. And <laughs> oh, just get in our white van, our windowless white van. Yeah. I know ladies are going missing, and I know that it's a big deal right now. But you want to just like get in our car? We have a car, and it's not broken down. Apparently, <laughs> these two creeps, Spike and Iggy, have been kidnapping women who are of a, of average height from New York. A head, two arms, and two legs, to be that's, exact. That's the is, specifications. Just grabbing women off the street and putting them in a warehouse. This is so Koopa. baffling to me because we later discover that Koopa has an evolving machine mm. that can make them much more intelligent and much better at their jobs. But this let's just send to. them out on multiple. It was runs. in a prototype phase, probably, maybe not. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Well, like they couldn't even remember that he's sending them out so that they could find a rock MacGuffin. So when he mentions it again in the film, they're like, the what now? And he's like, the rock, you idiots. Because (laughs) Daisy is kind of part of this MacGuffin. Like she was left on the doorstep of a nunnery and she was an egg. Uh, it's in in the prologue like her her mother played also by Samantha Mathis drops off this egg and then runs away. And the child hatches and is given the uh, the rock that came with it. Uh, she's she's being left there so that K- King Cooper, this military leader, somewhat question mark, yeah. uh, can't find her on the rock and then combine the worlds. I love how the nuns look at this giant egg, <laughs> giant ass egg, yeah, and they're like, "Oh, that's Satan. that's so sweet! Oh my gosh, <laughs> look at this thing! They look so happy to have this egg." <laughs> And then they cracks open and you see a baby and you're like, you should be concerned right now. (laughs) Clearly these are not nuns who've seen Rosemary's Hmm. baby or the omen. Oh, no, no, no. It's funny because we're led to believe that this is the normal dimension and the other one is where, like, oh, things went off. Yeah. But no, this is normal. No, dying eggs. (laughs) Whatever. So hang on, hang on. I've just realized, like, Daisy's father... Is a mushroom. I was literally yes. just thinking, played by Lance Henriksen yes. for six seconds at the end, yeah. and he never meets his daughter. Her mum appears to be a relatively normal human. Yeah. So yeah. where does the egg come in? So she has dinosaur, dinosaur DNA, but also she came from an egg. This, this is a this is exemplary of what a mess this film is. So what would happen if dinosaurs evolved into mammals? but still laid eggs. Uh, you do know that that's the de- dictionary definition of not a mammal. Does that mean that Apart Big Bertha, the, the, the lady that, that steals the rock later on, also lays eggs? Uh, yeah, she's yes. also a lizard. Yes. Question mark. <laughs> no, also, anyone like, in that dimension is a dinosaur. Yeah, anyone in that dimension is descended directly from the dinosaurs. There is an issue, though, which is that the mammals that we are descended for, the primates, the, the apes, are descended themselves from kind of primate-like lizards who were originally less primate-like lizards. If you've ever watched the the documentary Right Here, Right Now by Fatboy Slim, you'll see there's a very clear run from (laughs) single-celled organisms to uh, guys who eat cheeseburgers. And it goes um, like fish, fish with legs, crocodile, lizard thing that climbs trees that then turns into an ape. (laughs) I I do actually believe the first phase was... Primordial slime. 
<laughs> yes, and Hopper actually ends up being uh, uh, tre- de-evolved. de-evolved all the way back to goop, to, uh, to primordial soup uh, that way. So uh, I, I suppose that that's Nintendo. scientific. <laughs> I think, I feel like Rocky and Annabelle had this this thing so firmly in their mind and that the Daisy's father is a mushroom was just part of the wrapping the Mario thing around that idea. Yeah. Well, what the, what they wanted to explore was the notion that what if a dimension of people who uh, didn't evolve past the lizard brain, mm. so they were all guided by their baser impulses. Well, I can tell you for one thing, they wouldn't be designing disco clothes and driving cars. <laughs> It's kind of a, a wacky, like skateboard Nickelodeon version of uh, Blade Runner, but uh, but yeah, it's got the, all of those things but in, crammed in. But include a nice dance scene where people are stripping in the background. PG, those were actual my strippers, friend. apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm really happy we got to see that in a, a family friendly movie. Yeah. <laughs> yep that that bit was the the bit that I was like well, this. This has no place. This this has a place in the movie Tank Girl, which also tanked and we really like, but it doesn't have a place in Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Although actually, going back to what you said initially about the who on earth was the audience for this thing, um, yes. the way you hear them talk about it in the behind the scenes stuff, they keep changing their minds. Mm. It's yeah. the kids. No, it's not. It's for adults. No, it's not. It's for all the family. They couldn't seem to settle on the, just that fundamental element. It's actually for men who have not grown up enough to actually be ready for it. I think that's what it is. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Parker, uh, the uh, writer, states for the record in the documentary, This Ain't No Game, that there is no story in the Mario video games. This is what he learned after playing the NES for all of a day. Uh, (laughs) Now, it was 1992 when this was being made, so obviously we've had decades worth of Mario games since then, which elaborate somewhat uh, in a very colourful fashion on what Mario does. And there's loads of, like side games as well like Mario is missing and Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga and all of the just there's loads of stuff but Mario the, Golf Tournament but at the time <laughs> if we if we discount like his appearances in sports games there was just a few Mario games Donkey Kong in 1981 Mario Brothers in 1983 Super Mario Brothers in 85 Super Mario Brothers 2 in 88 Super Mario Brothers 3 I'm gonna say 89 because that was the year The Wizard came out which is a better Super 89. Mario yeah. movie than this and that uh, was a, com- a commercial for Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lord. The amount of, hey, kids, phone the Nintendo hotline. That won't annoy your parents too much. <laughs> Just ask them for all the tips. Then Super Mario World in 1990 and Super Mario Kart in 1992. So all of those games had been made and were under their belt uh, that they had access to when making them. Now, he said there's no story in them. What is in these games that could have been drawn upon in this film in ways beyond what I'm going to call superficial name-checking, like there's a sign that says Thwomp in neon in the uh, in the city, which is, that is a superficial name-check. It just says, uh, Thwomp. Like, kids, that's a thing. I want to go Those there. Games. I saw that sign. I'm like, that's the first place I'm going when I get thwomp. to the city. Thwomp. <laughs> or rudimentary visual references like um, the fact that they're, they're wearing the red and the green um, outfits. And uh, okay. I suppose you could say them driving in cars is like a visual reference to Mario Kart if you stretch believability as far as you can. But what is in the games that could have been drawn upon instead in 
not so much a deeper way, but a more um, overt way in terms of them encountering and uh, what happens in the film. Uh, your princess is in other castle for a there, start. There is that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she does get kidnapped. <laughs> they have that right. They do the classic that, game right? of capture the flag. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, turtles. I suppose you kind of. It's kind of like a Rapunzel turtles? situation in a way. You know, you got. But then there's the Bowser element as well. King Koopa. There's a. Uh, there's some parallels you could draw that could be potentially interesting to today. I feel like. Uh, but... Well, I think you just said interesting. <laughs> Interesting. You can actually read the subtext in the Mario games, even though barely anyone says anything in words, that there is a mushroom kingdom and then Mm -hmm. there is a kingdom of turtles and dinosaurs and the one is led by Bowser and has invaded the other. And yeah. Mario is there to mm. clean house and get rid of them. Mm. And maybe you know, sort of medieval base, you know, kingdom versus kingdom. Yeah, kind of. It's almost like, and you could also read into it that Bowser always stealing Princess Peach or Daisy or which or, or Pauline or whichever. And it was, sometimes it was Donkey Kong who stole Pauline. Um, whichever princess got captured is could be read if you wanted to just be more than just a damsel in distress as some kind of power play, some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, once I've got you, then the Mushroom Kingdom have to do what I say, so I have these two kingdoms. Mm. And you've got the uh, the element of what happens in Shrek, mm. where if you marry a princess, particularly a princess from the kingdom that you've invaded, then that potentially legitimises your oh, authority. That makes Bowser like Farquaad. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You could also infer from Super Mario World that there are dinosaurs, colorful ones, that want to help out. Mm. So, like, y- Yoshi like a should definitely. Have... named Toad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is based on a mushroom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we could go more of a Princess Bride route with it as well. I mean, you, you're taking Princess Buttercup, you know, the people are mm-hmm. trying to, to set up some sort of, you know, kingdom versus kingdom fight again, you know? Yeah. King of Florence. Oh yeah, but, but either way, that's that's definitely power play stuff. We we did Princess mm-hmm. Bride a few uh, uh, months ago. Boy, do we love that movie! Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. But, it's a um, yeah, I could imagine uh, Bowser as kind of a humperdink type figure, even if he's played by a human being. I think the the one bit that there is a bit of a difficulty explaining in a fundamental translation between game to film mm. is why is the champion of this kingdom a plumber? Yeah, I mean the the him being from Brooklyn. And him and Luigi being from Brooklyn and like turning up in this kingdom, mm. sometimes like, like emerge, then there being warps and pipes and things. Yeah, they're go- going into it through yeah. the sewer. That then kind of makes all of that make sense. To, on, like on a childlike way, like, you know, these people are not of the Mushroom Kingdom. You don't see anyone who looks like Mario or Lu- uh, Luigi in the original game. Everyone's a mushroom or a Goomba right. or a turtle or something. Yeah. I so they're outsiders. I that they got right as well. Part of the fundamental difficulty, though, is that they... One of the remits for creating the script and the, the ideas behind it and everything was take this very thin, uh, visually simple game mm. and bring it into a more realistic world Mm. and there are all sorts of pitfalls in in trying to do that because fundamentally it's still a movie and at some point you're gonna have to say to people just accept the weird and i think they they ran too hard from the weird and ended up smacking into other weirds that really shouldn't have been there this is something 
I've said before in terms of, and this really afflicted the Street Fighter movie. Uh, like I said, I have beef with that. Street Fighter 2, the arcade game, is about a fighting contest where 12 characters from around the world who are mostly all stereotypes meet up and fight each other to be able to get the chance to beat M. Bison. And they tossed all that out, and Stephen E. D'Souza, the writer of Die Hard, created all of this extra baby stuff for Street Fighter to somehow legitimize the world of that movie. Like, it was like, E. Honda can't dress like E. Honda. He has to be a cameraman, and we'll find a way to make him end up dressed sort of like E. Honda by the end, as they slowly stretch the possibilities of reality. And it's like, you know, if you've just gone for heightened reality, absurdity, mm-hmm. and in this case, in the case of Super Mario Brothers, surrealism, I feel like people would have taken it on board much earlier. It's like, you know, at, at the beginning yeah. of... Of the film, Ralph Julia knew exactly what type of movie he was in there. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. it was only Tuesday. But, <laughs> but yeah, actually, this brings me to in 2017, the Idea Channel, which is sadly now uh, uh, defunct, and I miss it every day. Discussed the possibility that Super Mario Brothers, the games, not the film, might be a surrealist masterpiece. André Breton was a leading French surrealist writer and anti-fascist, a thing that I promise is going to be important soon enough, who wrote his Manifesto of Surrealism in 1924. In it, Breton gripes that people had, in effect, lost their imagination. Distracted and sated by materialism, Breton charges that lots of folks had become stuck in what he called the realistic attitude, a dull view of the world which bases reason primarily on familiarity and therefore comfort and practicality. He criticizes mankind, saying people seek reassurance rather than the excitement or salvation of expansive originality. And he said that this happens at great cost. The realistic attitude he wrote clearly seems to me to be hostile to any intellectual or moral advancement. I loathe it, for it is made up of mediocrity, hate, and dull conceit. Forbidden, he later writes, is any kind of search for truth which is not in conformance with accepted practices. Surrealism, he felt, could be an antidote to how boring, repetitive, and sensical everything had become, and as such, an antidote to even greater and more pressing troubles. Drawing heavily from Freud, Breton describes how in dreams, one can find something akin to the true operations of thought. In dreams, the surprising combination of elements like your dad is a lawnmower and your house is made of cheese and you go back in time to visit George Washington. For some reason, it all kind of makes sense. The goal of surrealism would be to seize upon this pre-rational, purposefully unreasonable cognition and in so doing, escape the structures of moral and aesthetic comfort holding everyone back. If you could visually represent the bizarreness of thought and show its surreality, then perhaps others would realize that the rationality holding them back isn't the only game in town. The weird semi-nonsense that comprises surrealist art then isn't the end goal of the movement, but one effect of an overarching philosophy described by Breton. In order to progress, in order to rescue humanity, one must confront and sometimes court the unexpected. But okay, what, you might ask, did Breton and the Surrealists think humanity needed rescuing from? Well, many things, all very grand and important sounding, but perhaps most importantly and pressingly, fascism. 
1924, the year of Breton's manifesto, Mussolini was elected prime minister of Italy, and it would be Italy's last free election for 22 years. Breton and the other surrealists witnessing the rise of authoritarian nationalism saw surrealism as one way to challenge the regime, along with other more compliant art forms and media outlets. To be clear, fascism did not inspire surrealism or single-handedly bring it into being, but it did provide an impetus to some of its most famous practitioners, except Dali, who didn't get along with Breton and who was actually a fascist. Yeah, it's surprising, I know. Fascism also provides a fulcrum, albeit admittedly a slightly awkward one, which pivots us back to Mario. I don't know that I can say for sure what inspired Mario creator Shigeru Miyamoto. Not fascism, if I had to guess. He's talked of technological restrictions guiding the design of Mario's hat and mustache. With only so many pixels available, one shape was easier than another. This inspired him to think of Mario as a plumber. So hey, why not make him from New York? Bowser was originally supposed to be an ox inspired by the Ox King from Alakazam the Great, but became more of a turtle after the design of the Koopa Troopas was finalized and he is named after a Korean dish. So the creative decisions which give us Mario and his pals seem to be a combination of restriction, inspiration, iteration, and whim. The effects of the producers moving hard away from the surrealism and towards a version of the designer ethic that they ended up with pitched it closer to some weird mishmash of the two where it on the one hand they were trying to like they were trying to almost not discredit the games but just cast it aside that whole that like the, the tagline for the movie there was this ain't no game and there's another there was another uh, web series uh, from giant bomb called tang where uh, ryan davies would cover every video game movie available at the time one uh, you know one one each week uh, and and so many of them had the tagline this ain't no game like the films themselves were trying to rise above of their source yeah <laughs> exactly uh, and and to that end like the surreal elements of super mario brothers there is a a hammer brother who floats around on a cloud and, and throws hammers at you uh, you know if, if you put on a tanuki suit and run fast enough you can fly it has a video game logic where like when you play, I've never seen anyone play the original <laughs> and then as soon as they headbutt the first question mark block and a mushroom comes out, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, actually, it's not a headbutt. He's slightly punching the block. His hand is one pixel <laughs> of this. Yeah. Um, but as soon as the mushroom comes out, they no one has ever gone, whoa, wait, this isn't realistic at all. <laughs> like, where did that mushroom come from? They just accept it because it's a video game world. But when you start to think about the um, the connections that the subconscious makes sometimes, Alice in Wonderland, mushrooms make you taller. Yeah. That actually makes perfect sense. Mario, the game, has a dreamlike quality to it. Mm. And I think what they ended up with by uh, leaning on the Blade Runner-like aesthetic was trying to go more with a nightmarish quality. A dystopia. Yeah. Right. Um, but We've got enough of those. There are, there are too many things happening that feel like they, they felt they had to put concrete connections between A and B and C. Either you're in a nightmarish dreamscape, mm. in which right. case go with that, or you're in a world that has to make sense, in which case go with that. Mm. Right, and this is something they're they're finally starting to realize with uh, video game adaptations. Like, I think Sonic is the most direct comparison to something like this. Of course, yeah. it's like they, And with the mushrooms in Mario, you have the rings in Sonic, and they found an actual meaningful way to have the rings be 
you know, something in this movie that is important, yet it's still vibrant, comical, doesn't feel the need to darken anything about the source material. It's like, oh, this is like a portal to another world. That's what it is. You know? but yeah, I think yeah that, that they finally found the right approach. It's almost like the difference between getting, you know, it's the director's obviously approach. So I, I for some reason, I also get Paul W.S. Anderson vibes from this movie. I feel like he could have uh, easily jumped in. I wouldn't say Paul W.S. Anderson. Well, Come he on. did Mortal Kombat and just went, right, so what is this? A fighting tournament? Okay. Run by a sorcerer? Okay. Who's this guy? Liu Kang? Okay. Who's this guy? Johnny Cage? Okay. Take the name and throw it in a movie. Yeah. He's <laughs> remarkably faithful to the original yes. game. So because much, Paul W.S. Anderson couldn't be bothered to come up with anything else. <laughs> but like, hey, it's so, he's fun it's so close to the original material that the game series kind of went back on itself and started incorporating elements of the movie. Um, you know, from Mortal Kombat 9 onwards, they were like, actually, you got that so right in the movie. We're going to bring that in as well. So Kano was Australian from that point on. Get over here, boy. <laughs> now, Paul W.S. Anderson saved his increasingly preposterous reshaping of the supremely atmospheric games into stupid, shabby movies for the Resident Evil franchise. Obviously, Mortal Kombat Annihilation is just a, a, a hilarious trash fire, but the original Mortal Kombat, as <laughs> we covered it fairly recently, is just a ton of fun. But they don't seem embarrassed about what they're doing, whereas with this, Jankel and, and, and Morton were just uh, almost... Well, they, the place they chose to film it in was an abandoned cement factory. And from the like straight away like that, you're like, okay, so unless the moment they go into this cement factory, it's dark and cavernous and like it's not gonna feel at all like the sort of the first thing you see is this blue skies and green pipes and you get this funky Hawaiian beat which doesn't fit with an Italian plumber but all of this stuff all of these motifs go together and you just accept it um it feels like that the directly not vibing with it. Right. As you said, the we are now getting way better video games. I can't not mention Detective Pikachu, which yes. is just a magnificent right. movie, regardless of the video game relation. It's so weird that you say that, because I feel like Detective Pikachu is almost going in a similar, like, cyberpunk aesthetic. Kind of, yeah. There's like, a little, it like, it's a cut Blade Runner. Right. But it works, you know? It's a, yeah. I don't know, yeah. There's a, there's that, a canniness to that. and okay. But also, the makers, my God, the love for Pokemon in those actual right. creatures. They are so adorable. And like, ev- like ev- they know that when you see a Lickitung, you'll be like, oh, that's gross, but I love it. Right. <laughs> or a Mr. Mime is like, that guy's kind of creepy, but, you know, yeah. let's go with it. I think that there's movie a... Works even if you don't know Pokemon at all. Right. Exactly, yeah. And I think there's um this... What is lacking in Super Mario Brothers is that there's a detachment from the users of the video game. There's There was no investigation on who these people are. And I think that's a big problem with early 90s in general for me was this commercialism where they just trust that the image and the brand will work but disregard the individuality and what's missing from the video game is the user experience yeah they're, so they're they basically you- took something from you and made it their own and bastardized it and that's an issue i have with a lot of movies that are based on books that you grew up and knew and love but now you're seeing it paraded in front of your face. Yeah, this is someone giving you a Coca-Cola and it's filled with Pepsi. <laughs> like, 
Gosh, that's an insult. It's it's not even Pepsi though, is it? It's Panda Pan- Brand. I was thinking Panda Pop. A bottle, <laughs> vaguely cola flavored soda. It's it's Beverly. If you've ever been to. Oh yeah. I... Oh yeah. We went... Yeah. Oh gosh, it'll make you throw up. Absolutely, that stuff was grim. And yet, strangely. Despite the cola you're being handed tasting cheap, it was actually twice as expensive as a regular Coke. But I I do think that, yeah, uh, there is a shift in what video game movies are able to achieve these days. And I think a huge part of it is just fundamentally the fact that now they are being written and made by people who grew up playing video games. Directors who were old enough to have grown up on video games just didn't exist in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, we haven't mentioned King Cooper, uh, played by uh, Dennis Hopper. Again, bringing us back to Back to the Future Part 2. This was the second instance in a matter of four years of an obvious analogue for Donald Trump and, uh, well, what horrible world would exist if he was in charge? Uh, <laughs> so scored by Alan Silvestri. <laughs> right, do you know what this is? I need your my de-evolution machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Facebook. Um, people were going back in time and trying to, to warn, warn us. us. They were putting messages in the movies and we were not paying attention. But either. if you look at the way he behaves, he's such a gross little orange bastard. And <laughs> Hopper is not having any fun at all. And you know when Trump isn't having fun, he gets that tense look on his face. Yeah. And Sorry, sort of and Hopper seemed way too, too intelligent to be a direct correlation. He's always eating junk food, too. You notice that? He's like always ordering something. It's like, where's my pizza? Where's my burger? <laughs> no mammals on that, please. Extra spicy. No. <laughs> it's also not the not the only time he's played a Trump analogue. In Land of the Dead, uh, directed by George Romero, which we covered yeah. in our Dead Quadrilogy, he's up in this Trump Tower, and he'll only let rich people in. Everyone else is zombie food. So, yeah, yeah Hopper kind of got acclimatized to playing that this... That is an incredibly underrated movie, by the way. I, lo- I love Land of the Dead. Yeah, Actually, uh, it's on our Instagram. It's your favorite uh, zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, actually, that turned out to be my favorite of the four when we covered that then. It's not my favorite zombie movie because Shaun of the Dead. But, yes! Uh, Shaun of the Dead. That's that Irina's. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I, Hopper is, like, he's pissed off. And from the sounds of it, Hopper on the set was really pissed off. At one point, he screamed at the writers for about half an hour straight about the fact that they'd rewritten one of his scenes on the fly. And he he was like, quick, get a dictionary. You find me the definition of acting, because that's what I'm doing, pal. And I, I would hate to be on the other side of that. I believe both Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper were in this similar boat when it came to like this. They were so used to receiving these last minute rewrites that they stopped doing research every night and we're just like, you know, they're probably going to give me something new in the morning. I don't even care anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just a lot of them. I, well, who were the ones Spike and Iggy? Is that who they were? Spike yeah. And Iggy. Yeah. Yeah. They, I heard that they were improving most of their lines because they just, they were like, you know what? We're getting lines every hour. We're improving this. And, um, it shows Yeah. yeah. probably better than what was going to be written. Yeah. To be fair. <laughs> It was really sad uh, uh, watching the uh, actor who plays um, uh, Spike, Spike, uh, who was the guy in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, who's like, you guys have nothing to worry about. When 
they drop off the Ferrari and he ends up sort of driving it like that's a, him. Yeah, oh my no god! Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he read out um, Bob Hoskins uh, talking in a magazine about uh, you know, and and he read this out the day after Hoskins passed for the uh, documentary, and one assumes they might have been able to get hold of Hoskins for the interviews, but he I, either that or he declined. But he read about how horrible this shoot was, and he just seemed really crushed and sad. His name is Richard Edison. If I could just take a moment here, because today is a sad day in relation to uh, Super Mario Brothers. I guess uh, Bob Hoskins, who was Mario, uh, died um, yesterday. And uh, he's a great guy. So Bob Hoskins was not a big fan of his role in the 1993's Super Mario Brothers. Playing the title role was one of his biggest regrets. He told UK is the Guardian. He listed it as his worst job and biggest disappointment. He said it was the one role. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. He said it was the one role he would edit from his past if he could. So. Uh, Bob Hoskins, I hope it wasn't that bad, and may you rest in peace. And then, like, in the end credits, he gets a whole bunch of action figures out of his pockets whilst on top of a roof, and, like, shows you, like, Moses and Albert Einstein, and then his Iggy figure, and he goes, and they all have something in common. They're all action figures of great men, and they're all Jewish. And, like, this meant something to him. So for mm -hmm. Bob Hoskins to destroy the film, you know, post-mortem, um, it, it just, it, 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 I felt very sorry for him. And I felt sorry for the, the two directors who, like I said, got kicked off. And like, it's, it's easy to be mean to this film and everyone has done. Right. Um, and like I said, it, I, I am not entertained by it. And I was looking for flashes of, oh, that could have been really good. But it yeah. just made me tired. And that also reminded me of Samantha Mathis at this point in her career was just sort of coming into her own. It was a very brief window of her being in films. She was in Pump Up the Volume and this. She would shortly be in Jack and Sarah with Richard E. Grant. And then she eventually ended up in Broken Arrow, back with Christian Slater again. And I loved Samantha Mathis in, in, in everything she's been in but she was trying to do two movies at once at this point what was the other one um, I think it's yeah The Thing Called Love The Thing Called Love so she was tired as hell and that's why Daisy looks blown out and exhausted and the fact that this cement factory was apparently boiling hot didn't help so when she's when she meets up with these women and uh, like they, they just seem to be being held in this place that used to hold cement I'm just like, wow, it must have been like a furnace. <laughs> and they have to pretend that they're cold at one point. Yeah. But um, but the really sad thing on this one is she was dating River Phoenix at the time. And oh, just no. a few months after this, he died. So I'm watching her tired and sad and trying to... She's, she's got nothing to work with as Daisy. And you know, there's a one point where she says in a very flip way when they're at uh, their dinner date, oh, I was abandoned in a kind of... <laughs> We do something with this and like you know at the end when lance henriksen turned up it's like okay so maybe she can have a reconciliation with her father and like hold on to this guy who's apparently been springy fungus which sort of 
like benevolently helps like this creature below Yellowstone Park the whole time <laughs> through the movie. This fungus looks gross, but apparently is really benevolent. And, and, it's, it's and somehow John Leguizamo <laughs> realizes it's helping them. Honestly, yeah. somehow that fungus should have given this movie an R rating. Like that, <laughs> at that thing. It looks like something out just, of Aliens. I was just imagining being a character being aided by fungus and mm. finding out that's a person and thinking, what? part of them am I touching right now? I don't even know. <laughs> and it's oozing. But, but her best scene is the one where she's up against Yoshi because she sells that this dinosaur is real. Mm-hmm. So much so that like when Fiona Shaw stabs him in the neck with a little spike, like, oh God, that's terrible. But then he's like limping for the rest of the movie. At, like the the fundamental thing about putting Yoshi in the movie is that's gonna be the dude that the kids love. You know how Milo gets to have his moment to shine in the mask and just gets to, like, pee on the gangsters and then, like, savage them and wear the mask and just, like, even just the jumping up and getting the keys and just kids mm-hmm. like the little animal that thinks it's a dog but isn't a dog. And in this case of right. Milo, is in fact a dog. But <laughs> because of what Yoshi, Yoshi was and because no one could ride him and because they had nothing really planned for him, he's just kind of there. Although it's really sweet the way he sort of yet he throws out his tongue to trip Fiona Shaw up when she's going to stab Daisy, which is what yeah. gets him stabbed in the head. But right. it seems yeah. it seems like a last minute rewrite to include him that actually sort of worked, and I would have liked to see them expand more on that because there actually was something there for once. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but I don't think anyone in the audience, not a single person including Fiona Shaw, whose character, Lena, who seems like really jealous and, and hates Daisy because she doesn't want uh, Cooper to be interested in her or something. Like, if Yoshi had just gone and just eaten her, just like uh, swallowed her whole and then pooped out an egg, all the kids in the audience would have gone, yay! Because <laughs> she dies horribly anyway, so may, you may as well have Yoshi turn her into an egg. And then like maybe a little baby dinosaur hatches out of that. And it's like, oh... Vor fetishists can enjoy this too. <laughs> was her death was mildly horrific, was it oh, not? God. Like uh, first off, like a hardcore electrocution, and then she just gets completely destroyed. She gets electrocuted more than once. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> there was a good one-liner there, though the the impression one-liner. She leaves a good she impression. Leaves, makes a good impression. <laughs> if there's anything, we got that. Uh. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, Parker oh. Pose? No. Posey, I wish. <laughs> Sorry, I, we we just finished a movie with her, so it was in my brain. <laughs> what was the um, movie? Oh, Blade Trinity, of course, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. with Ryan Reynolds who plays Pikachu. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Or Deadpool, or whoever else. I mean, he's pretty much playing proto Deadpool in that, isn't he? Yeah, he sure really is. Much is. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of the things, unrefined, but yeah. Uh, one of the things that Parker Bennett mentioned in his interview was that Fiona Shaw, by the time she came on to the cast, uh, he and uh, Runt were pretty much off as, or as far as right. Yeah, they'd been told, um, if we open this door, could you please leave? Yeah, how, how quickly can you leave the building? <laughs> so horrible. Um, but um, but they, they were still sort of hanging around and, and helping with um, a few writing. Yeah, they got their asses called back because they ran out of words. <laughs> Words. Write some more words down. Does it matter which ones? No, not really. Just, just words. Just words. Um, but Fiona Shaw thought that they still had some say in what was going on, and apparently she kept being really nice to him, uh. and he thought it was because she wanted him to kind of, you know, 
poof up her palm. Beef up my palm. And she couldn't. He couldn't because he wasn't in charge of how that went anymore. Listen he felt to me, really bad pa- about it. Parker, it says oh. here I get eaten by a dinosaur. Can he just trip me and I stab him? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good Lord. Um, so the Goombas you mentioned earlier... Um, there's one who's uh, apparently played by a guy named Mojo that I've not encountered before, who's supposed to be Toad, who's like a folk singer. And there was there was an element of this movie that back when I suggested we do it, I was really getting worried about it because like he gets disappeared off the street as an undesirable. There's a really frightening subtext to the idea that Cooper being in charge is is effectively just running this police state. Mm-hmm. And it's all played for laughs and shits and giggles, but the, um, effectively Toad gets turned into some kind of David Cronenberg body horror. This giant guy with a little tiny head on top that goes... The rationale behind that baffled me because it, it basically came down to, right, everybody's being de-evolved, his name is Toad, what if his DNA comes from Toads? So we'll make his head look like a little Toad. He's called Toad because he's a Toadstool. Uh, You've got a de-evolved fungus right there, but this, so we know you have this concept. This is why they were so confused. They think the Mushroom Kingdom and the Dinosaur Kingdom are the same thing. Yeah. 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 That's why she's an egg and her dad's a mushroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so breakfast. <laughs> and her mother was bacon and her cousin was a tomato. <laughs> she actually was Princess Tomato in the Salad Kingdom. About the, the, the seriousness, though, of, of abducting people, though, I mean, in the climate nowadays, especially. I mean, I know exactly. we've talked about this a little bit, Alex, but I mean. snatched off the street in Portland, and I was like, hmm. Imagine if random unmarked cars would just come pick you off the street with guys wearing ball caps. Yeah. That could never happen. So the way you, um, when you bring that up, it does remind me that there's this this interesting little um, detail that's happening here in this film where there's a lot of um, billboards in the background kind of portraying Koopa as almost a political candidate, you Holding know, babies. like, vote for vote me for kind of a thing. But, but his, there's no one else he's against. Koopa. Like, yeah. he's not against anyone. So it's almost this concept that, yeah, you have a choice of who's leading you, but really you don't. So <laughs> it's it's honestly it's kind of prevalent right now. Well, it kind of feels that way right now, because who knows how we're going to turn up come January. It is yeah. really strange. We literally have a president that would have a billboard of him kissing a baby. <laughs> like, that's like... Well, yeah, it's that sense of, I'm in charge, and you don't really get a lot of say in that, but I want you to love me. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really, really quite creepy. And that's the de-evolution scene. I remember uh, struck a chord with me because it was a uh, deeply disturbing for me as a kid and it reminded me of one other movie experience I had and that was framing Roger Rabbit with the who framed Roger Rabbit who framed Roger Rabbit yeah Yeah. but uh, it's they're very similar where you watching it as a kid I have a sense it's a kid's movie because there's something cartoonish about it but there are elements I don't quite understand that I'm aware I don't understand and that confounds and disturbs me you're, all you're at once. You're referring to the, the wiping the cartoons <laughs> yes, from existence. Yes, exactly. I hated oh, that dip, scene. Yeah. Oh, I hated man. that scene. Dip is as terrifying. Yeah, it's, that's merciless. We have yet to cover Roger Rabbit, but uh, that 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 freaked us out. And from the sounds of it, a lot of kids got freaked out by um, Christopher Lloyd at the end when he's like, do you, do you recognize my voice, Eddie? When I killed your brother! 
Uh, the two knives, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks daggers at him, literally. So, um, uh, the, here's like a couple of contributing factors. No one ever mentioned these two movies during the during any of the making of stuff. But obviously, we've already said Jurassic Park was coming up uh, you know, for the summer. It came out in June, and uh, uh, Mario Brothers came out in um, uh, hold on March or yeah. April. It was some some. It was like a couple months before, I think. Oh, March movies. <laughs> Back in those days, that meant some serious rubbish as well. <laughs> Give me a December movie any day. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, you know, get, we, we get nothing now. So. <laughs> um, no, apparently May. May was their uh, their movie. So, um, okay, sorry. Right. Okay. Jurassic Park came out in June, a month afterwards. And if you remember, Last Action Hero came out the week afterwards. They even had a dinosaur on the front cover of that because there's a, a, a fake dinosaur in the La Brea tar pits. And that sank. That was a Schwarzenegger film. Jurassic Park was the Titanic of 1993, the Avatar, the Avengers Endgame. It was huge. Yeah, especially it cost... just inflation. It's it's like one of the top movies. Oh yeah, still absolutely much like Wizard of Oz, which they yeah. decided not to make. Because why would you <laughs> want to make a Wizard of Oz when you could do Blade Runner for kids? It wasn't great, you know. Yeah. No one liked that movie. They made anyway. Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh <laughs> God. Yeah. Don't okay, get me but... started on that one. What were you saying? Um, okay, no, so uh, Jurassic Park came out in June, cost 63 million. That always confounds me. I'm like, 63 million for that? One of the greatest films of all time. Specifically, effects blockbusters. Yeah, Lord of the Rings is really cheap as well. films, yeah. Um, but it made a billion dollars over time. This is the first time that uh, we were looking at it, and Sharon was like, was that re releases or not? And I realized that when you're totting up how much a film was made over time, you can't start going, well, it made this much this year, and then inflation adjusted for all of these. They kind of have to just put it all in a big pot and put whatever dollars Avatar makes when it gets re-released before Avatar 2 comes out in a few years' time in the same pot as what it's made so far, rather than inflation adjusting it. But a billion dollars. Another film that came out in March, slightly before this, was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Oh my gosh. Now, you could definitely do that in terms of franchise killer. Three, yeah. Sorry, three, three, three. But that cost $21 million and it made $54 million, which is not terrible. Uh, but if you think back to the 1990 film, that cost $13 because it was like a golden harvest, cheapest chips film. It took $201 million. So $201, and then just a few short years later, three years later, you quarter that for how much it makes. That was indicative that kids who had just been just totally saturated in turtle power we're now kind of coming to that, you've cheapened this brand. Secret of the Use was much more for babies than the first one was. This third one was even worse. Um, but like kids were kind of growing too old. Their little brothers and sisters were getting into Power Rangers, which, by the way, did everything just totally straight and was just totally unabashed about how goofball it was. That's our generation um, right there. Yeah, there you go. Um, and but uh, you know, my generation was—I'm I'm a, a little bit older, but I was still into turtles. But I think by the time this third one came out, I was like, I just don't care. These films are yeah. rubbish now. And Super Mario Brothers feels like one of the kind of the knockoff turtley type things because you remember the cartoons at the time were also like sewer sharks and samurai pizza cats and biker mice from mars and uh, you know all of these uh, the toxic crusader and um 
uh, anything that we hate movies have ever done for animation, damnation. Uh, did I say sewer sharks? I meant street sharks. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I'm getting close enough. Yeah. Well, they, they all feel like you drew, mm. like it's you've got two tanks of ping pong balls with random words on them. You pull an animal out of one yeah. and a random word out of the other one, and then you find some way to fuse the two. And Bucky O'Hare. But they oversaturated the turtles' clones so that even the turtles themselves felt devalued. So kids were not fussed about turtles. So then when this Mario film comes along and it looks a bit like a turtley thing, and if you remember... And it's there's got turtley things in like it. Mario <laughs> itself as a game series is crammed with turtles. <laughs> There's just this slight, I don't care. But with the dinosaurs, they must have been so frustrated. They're like, we had dinosaurs. Why didn't you want to watch our movie? It's because Jurassic wow. Park's really good. <laughs> but You did not have dinosaurs as we'd wish. But Super Mario Brothers cost $48 million. And yeah. from the sounds of it, was it $4 million was just spent on the license? Uh, two. Two million dollars. So, so four million was the original asking price. They said we'll do it for two million. Yeah, and they had somehow managed to piss away another eight before they actually got in pre. Um, yeah, ten million dollars. They Jack were in the Bullet hole. Morton on board. Yeah. Uh, just in pre-production. That, that, that math here, by the way, for the uh, budget adjustment. Oh, yeah? uh, it's eighty-six million today's dollars. Yeah. If you were to make that movie, that's how much it would cost. And so. that that made in the cinema. You can you can adjust this as well. Twenty-five million. Yeah, it's <laughs> they took a bit of a loss. <laughs> I would say about half. That that is a bomb. And it, I, I went back up and I was like, "Hang on, which studio produced this?" And if you if you check, it says uh, Buena Vista, Wait, Hollywood light, Pictures, light <laughs> and, and Light Motive. Yeah, and I've never heard of Light Motive. I've obviously I've heard of Hollywood Pictures, and and I, Buena Vista handled Disney's. Um, more adult-focused movies over the course of the 90s. And they kind of yeah. fizzled out in the 2000s, and Disney just kind of um, stopped doing like, But like Con Air and um, like Dimension Films was, a, uh, was the horror brand of Miramax that were also owned by Disney. Like Disney were doing strange things in the 90s that weren't necessarily slapping the word Disney on everything. Mm. Uh, we, we, we say now, oh, Disney own everything, but they owned a they hell of a lot even then. They in a lot. And they'd earned yeah. a lot of money from their, their second, their, was it their third renaissance yeah. of uh, animated movies Absolutely. at this point. Um, I, I, so it's a Disney movie. I believe Light Motive is what Jake Eberts was calling it himself back then right i think because he changed the company name not long after right. this <laughs> probably with good reason got it i would too after this movie disassociate yeah. i mean like if you compare it to say food fight and uh, um uh, mortal combat annihilation and our pal what's his name uh, richard williams no no the uh, uh producer of uh, food fight hold on Casanoff. Lawrence, Lawrence Kazanoff. Lawrence Kazanoff is a crook and a thief, and <laughs> all of his films are... Stole my own hard drives. <laughs> all of his films are cinematic <laughs> espionage. Is that an animated movie? Yeah, yes. it's it's a wow. terrible... like this. this it, 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 it was... Well, just check out our show on that. Like, oh, that we, will. Was a, we will. That was a really hackneyed way of trying to make money from food products uh, and the the labels who would pay you so this is nothing like that there isn't that same level of cynicism 
that Kazanov exhibited in that and Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which was this weird kind of, what if we just put on a play in a barn and it was extremely expensive and we filled it with Mortal Kombat cosplayers? Because that's what MK <laughs> Annihilation is. That's my thing. Yeah, yeah. This, this movie at least looks like work went into it. You look yeah. at it. And it's no, like, the production yeah. value is actually really good. I, I mean, I I'm not crazy. Really okay, okay. For the early like, 90s? Yeah. I don't know. I would say that it is above average. Mm. I just, it, it looks like there it's, was. Oh, money. wait, hold on. All right. <laughs> hook. It is a hook level production value. I compared it to Hook. I said even if Thank Spielberg you. had made it, it would look <laughs> probably a bit like Hook. Yeah. But I, that's one of the things. If you look, Cooper at one point points to the world. And it's a desert world with one city on it. Yep. <laughs> if you've played any of the Super Mario games, you'll know there are all kinds of biomes there. There's there's meadows and there's deserts and there's oceans. Like, this desert world doesn't have any water. How's well, anything just, alive? Uh, just one of the dimensions, okay? Maybe there's more. <sighs> just the Kupahari Desert, man. Because <laughs> yeah. we it's... can't think of a more creative name. The whole oh, wait, no, rest right. of the world That's is the Kupahari Desert level. Just, it's mental. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing, like saying these games have no plot. No, but they have life. They have mm -hmm. worlds. They have animals. And They're there people. isn't a piranha plant in this. Yeah. And and there's all of these, this sense of color and, 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 and passion and fun about the Mario games, which they seem to be running away from and then got forcibly inserted into their, like it was course correction. You know how... Uh, Suicide Squad was David Ayer trying to be like, oh, fuck Marvel, we're not going to be like Marvel at all. And then uh, DC <laughs> handed down notes and said, so can you make it look more be like more Marvel? like Marvel. We want to sell this stuff in Hot Topic. Oh, and <laughs> similarly... David Ayer flips table. Yeah, while, while the people who've demanded the Snyder Cut of Justice League uh, have been incredibly tiresome, the wow. Justice League film as it turned out theatrically, what just reeked of course correction. And like, we tried to yes. drag this back towards the middle and it ended I'm, up being utterly mediocre. I'm really of two minds on that. I, like I, I do want to see Snyder's vision, but I'm, I also don't like how it's enabling all the people that have been clamoring for this Absolutely. other version. I agree. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I wanted to see it for quite a while, but I also don't want them to get their own way by demanding it in an obnoxious fashion. It would have been yeah, really right. nice if they just stopped demanding it. And then suddenly it had been, uh, it turned up so that they couldn't credit themselves. I'm with kind it. of morbidly curious just to see what, a studio can change that makes it significantly different from what it originally yeah. was intended to be. Interesting link. Uh, the Justice League theatrical movie was plagued by the presence of a moustache, whereas this movie <laughs> suffered the yeah. absence of a moustache. <laughs> Luigi's, right? <laughs> how much could you? How much would it cost to jib-jab a uh, moustache onto John Leguizamo for this I don't know. Ask, ask what they did in Superman. I mean, 24 I've, million, apparently. I've heard it's... Yep it's much easier to put on something than take something off. So I, I imagine you could edit it in without too much, you know, trouble. I would imagine John Leguizamo wouldn't look so furious that he'd want to tear you in half like a phone book the way that Henry Cavill does through most of his appearances as a Superman. Just make the editor go through the print with a brown felt pen. <laughs> I don't know if they could do that back in 93, though. I can only imagine nowadays, like, you know what, we're going to put this in 4K. Someone had a mustache to this guy. That does lead me on, however, to the final question, which is how could this have been done well in the 90s and also, because apparently we've got an Illumination one coming at some point, um, but you can diverge from that now and talk about a live-action version, just speculatively if you like. How could we do it now? 
So I, I actually, I don't know if you could pull this off live action. Uh, I, I think the closest comparison to something working that is similar to this is something like the Lego movie, mm-hmm. where it is bookended by la- live action segments. They jump down the pipe and it's some sort of animated version that is colorful and very representative of so like Mario a 50 50 almost like you start yeah, yeah, live action that goes down. into it yes right. and and they come out at the end and it's like oh well you know life's different now i kind of miss the i miss the mario world i miss daisy who's <laughs> still stuck there we got to go back in yeah uh, that that's that's, that's a really of, good idea honestly i feel like nowadays they could do it that way obviously 90s maybe not the best I mean, idea you but hand-drawn animation studios that i feel like could pull it off like you got dreamworks you got disney still uh, i don't know if disney dreamworks was out yet i don't think Dream. ants came out yet that's true oh no, 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 no that was 98 uh because yeah. katzenberg true. caught wind true. that a bug's life was coming out from pixar and he went right. do ants <laughs> ants but make it vietnam Ooh. The danger yeah, they do of, as well i think the danger of doing a live action to uh, animation transition back then is that it would have been somewhat reminiscent of something like the I don't water know, babies water babies was what i was thinking i don't know if you guys would know that one mm. um but it's... osmosis jones if anyone oh, remembers that yes one. yes that is actually a perfect comparison. The movie that was responsible for me being afraid that I had every disease known to man. Uh, yeah, she still has that. You didn't eat a chimp's egg, though, did you? I know. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, you, you, got, you, got, you got Space Jam, too. That's another one. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Not, I don't know. I, Osmosis Jones, though, was really good. I think that was more... I wouldn't say it was really No. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. It, it was fun. Hold it on. I'm going to say, ride. though, it, the difference is that you have Space Jam, which is more of a Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where you're combining real life in animation where he's osmosis just as 50 50 you know yeah. you're in one or you're in the other but was that successful is what i'm saying i'm, I'm not oh, gonna no, lie i tanked. actually liked it as a kid <laughs> i i'm sorry i did i liked it it was great come so on possibly no. doing it in that style then would have made it um it would have given it a little bit more appeal but not mm. necessarily much more popularity it's important mm. to note that like disney had a hand in this toy story was just around the corner it was a it was two years away I feel like if they'd said, okay, we need a Super Mario Brothers movie animated by Pixar, that could have been absolutely mm. cracking. And I said when we were watching it, oh my God, Onward is a better Super Mario Brothers movie than this. It's about two brothers who kind of like, uh, there, there's tensions between them. They go on a big quest. It's it's a better, you know, Mario Brothers movie in terms of like the journey of two brothers. Mm. And I, obviously I've never Pixar drawn the connection between that and Mario, but... It I see it. I sense. actually see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of how you could do it well now, I think that the only thing that I would say they would need to do above all else is you've got to lean hard into the dreamlike quality. Mm. Yeah, just make it make it now feel for the 40-year-olds watching, like mm. the playing the NES, NES games. In fact, yeah. there could be a whole sequence where it's like they suddenly go 8-bit mm. and then it goes to 16-bit and then it goes to Mario Kart. And just like journey, like a little, like a sequence that just makes everyone who's older than a certain age cry. And then their kids are like, what is it, Dan? Nothing. Just <laughs> in my eye. Nothing. Shut up, son. <laughs> uh, but, or daughter. Yeah, you. I personally think uh, then Bob Chipman said, and I agree with him, that one of the reasons to do this in cinema at all is to make the most of a new medium. And technically, if it was just animated and looks like every other animation out there, if it looked like, say, Home, or if it looked like uh, Trolls, then it would look like the cutscenes in Mario Odyssey, which would look lovely, 
but you'd just be watching a long cutscene of right. Mario and Luigi saving people. So it being, you know how Enter the Spider-Verse went, we're going to do an animated Spider-Man, but we are going to really do an animated Spider-Man. Just that extra step into abstraction. Yeah. I could go on forever about Enter the Spider-Verse. Like I, that is such yeah. an amazing movie as far as animation goes. They, but they nailed it. I, if they tried to take something like, I don't know, for some reason you you kind of peek this in, in my brain. I'm trying to imagine, imagine if Illumination tried to ruin this movie. I mean, try to make this movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, It'd be it, all over it would Facebook. be terrible. <laughs> I don't know, man. I get a, a lot of emojis out of this. I just mm. think that, I don't think that full animation is the way to go if you're trying to remake this movie. Unless it's an animation that has its own style. And like, you know how the, you mentioned the Lego movie. That has a beautiful substance to it. Where if you look at like Emmett and company, they've got the, like the little, the texture of the Lego things. And you always, when, yes. when you first started watching, like, is this stop motion? But it's not. Right. It's a very clever computer program that gives it that worn, bitten texture. Yeah. So, like, you've, yeah. got, you've got fingerprints on them. Um, so if you can do a Mario uh, film that feels like it's actually in a video game yeah, and, and it has just certain aspects to it that make it different to other things. Like I said, Spider-Verse has its own personality. So it, it, like, if you're going to do Nintendo films, they have to... They don't have to because they probably won't, but it would be right. lovely if they could differentiate themselves because Nintendo have made a career of differentiating themselves from Microsoft and Sony and Sega before them. And just like uh, we are this version of video games and they've never right. panicked and gone. We need to look way better than our competition. Nope. They've always right. just focused on quality. Which is again baffling why they've gone for illumination because <laughs> they don't. I mean, apart from Sing, which was lovely, right. most illumination films are a little bit disposable. I think even further than that, to make a successful film, like going off of what you're saying, you have to create your own, I guess, literary voice. Mm. And it's not, th this one doesn't really have one. So you don't really know what you're supposed to be getting on board with. So a lot of successful movies, when you look back on them, the quality isn't great, but you forgive that because it has good bones. It has a good story. You still enjoy the ride. You forgive all those details because it's not perfect, but there's something about the story that you sit around and stick for. You know, it's, and this doesn't have that. I don't feel like I learned or gained anything from it. Mm, yeah, agreed. Uh, that thank you. That is pretty much a nail on the head there. For uh, <laughs> it needed to be something that felt like an experience. And and while, like I said, I would want to make all the forty-year-olds cry, um, <laughs> the Lego Movie is fantastic for many other reasons than just nostalgia. I think, uh, Ready Player One overloaded me on nostalgia, and now I find <laughs> it. Uh, like, I'm I'm a little bit sensitive to it. It's like yes, I I remember this thing from the '80s. But, that, was, um, that movie was so exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, if if they're gonna make a Super Mario Brothers movie, it needs to be a solid like an adventure and escapade as it is on its own. It doesn't necessarily have to be a complete subversion and critique on the hero's journey the way that the Lego Movie was, but it definitely needs to feel like more than just this is the routine that you've seen done so many times before. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny because I'm just thinking of this as we're 
talking, and this is kind of stream of consciousness, but I, I almost don't think there is enough to the Mario and Luigi characters to sustain mm. their own movie. Yeah. It's, they, have, they have such basic mm. character, you know, yeah. backgrounds. You can, I, it, you can elaborate on that. I mean, like, Pikachu himself didn't have particularly much... Uh, um, absolutely show. nothing. And they kind of cheated with uh, yeah. uh, Detective Pikachu in terms of why he has personality, and it's delightful. But, say, if... Meowth was in, uh, oh, actually, when we covered Detective Pikachu, I said the ideal person to play Meowth in a sequel would be Danny DeVito. So there's a lovely oh kind of link up there. But you know that, like, Meowth doesn't have that much dimensionality to him, but you get the right writer on there and you sort of, like, expand on it. And that whole idea of Mario not really wanting to be a plumber and, mm-hmm. like, if one of, uh, like, Luigi, kind of with his Luigi's Mansion escapades, is known for kind of being a lot more scared and a lot more uh uh like reticent to do things so then you've got tension between the two of them and again bob said this if you you have them castling throughout the movie so that mario actually starts to um uh yearn for home a bit more and start wanting to just be a plumber again and luigi himself kind of comes into his own and stops being quite so scared of everything for enough of a reason then you have development for both of them yeah. Right. It, my my only thing though is like when you actually think of Mario and Luigi, mm. I can't think of an actual drawn out conversation between these two characters. It's always just Mario makes a statement, Luigi, Luigi makes a <laughs> statement, and then they start the mission. Well, see, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. That's what you need writers for. People have to read between it. You have yeah. to take small little things and build the story off of yeah. it. But he, I, he, here's here here is one of my ideas though, and right. I'm gonna okay oh, okay shoot ahead. me down real quick. I will. <laughs> no, no, uh, I want to hear it. But I was almost thinking if you did like a Wreck It Ralph three, and had it completely centered around him visiting a Mario world, oh, and introduced to that universe through the eyes of Wreck-It Ralph, an established character with dimension. Mm. And then we see how much Mario can actually, you know, sustain himself as a character. Then you kind of get a good gauge as to the mileage you could get out of a Mario standalone type of thing. Mm. I don't know. So Mario would be more of the Felix in a way where you get to see his character being the one doing all the good and Luigi kind of being the secondary is like, man, freaking Mario taking all the clout. Oh, uh, yeah. you can't do that to Luigi. Well, well, the thing is, there is that little bit of, I, I'm yeah. in my head, I imagine a rivalry a little bit between the two brothers. Yeah, I could see um, that. And maybe that's just me getting into other video games and storylines. But I could just easily see a, a Wreck-It Ralph being swept along in, in a Mario adventure. That's kind of the one I wish we got, actually. Instead yeah. of a movie bragging about how much Disney owns. Yeah. Look at all these <laughs> properties. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't covered uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet yet, but I have issues with that way beyond. Like, if nothing else, it's like, oh, hey, become a YouTuber. Hurt yourself. It's really profitable. <laughs> Maybe my idea is not that great. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. I like your idea way better. I like your idea. I was yeah. just saying that that was probably a, yeah, a lesser version of what you just described. <laughs> What we've described of the uh, Mushroom Kingdom being separate from the real world, like uh, uh, Super Mario Odyssey had, um, was that New New Donk City, which kind of yeah. felt like the reality, and he goes through into other worlds that way. It feels like if there was a sense that they have to go back at the end, and mm-hmm. that uh, the Mushroom Kingdom is somewhere that exists just a shadow of a breath away, like Narnia, and you really want to go there, and it's precious, 
but not just leave them at the end and hey we're all set up in the mushroom kingdom and everything's fab just the bittersweetness of having to go back to the real world and like us have to leave the cinema i feel like that would actually really make an impact Right. Yeah, play with the, the memories that you had in this world and that you can't always be there. Yeah. When I go back. Yeah. yeah. That's a good subtext. The whole idea of that we, we ultimately have to be able to get through the you know regular life. We can't just wallow yeah. in, in, in the fantasy the whole time. And the, at the end of this film, Luigi's like, oh, hey, how, how about you uh, come back with us to Brooklyn? And Daisy's like, I can't. I've got a father to meet at some point, and I've got lots of responsibilities. <laughs> so that's important. Yeah. But, and, 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 uh, and Mario's like, come on, Luigi. And at no point does Luigi go, you know what? How about I just stay? Like, we yeah. were starving to death back in Brooklyn. Right. What did we have there? This is actually a place that needs us, or at least this woman needs us, and I just want to help her. And, right. and be supportive. That, if nothing else, just I just want to be supportive. That's a nice way to end it. Well, and also yeah. they're lacking plumbers in that world. I mean, come on, you that's guys a, can make a profit. There's yeah, no Scarpelli's Scar- over there. Scarpelli's probably going out of business. <laughs> exactly. Oh, he's a monkey now. He's a. Chicken. Oh yeah. Oh, Dennis right. Hopper <laughs> beams into our world for a bit, uses a super super scope six that de-evolutionizes this gangster boss into a chimpanzee. <laughs> And then Dennis Hopper points at it and goes, monkey! But like, And then everyone laughs. Everyone's just... <laughs> yeah, laughs. They had a, a, Not he's utterly horrified by what they've just witnessed. We hate movies said this. I would shit my ever-loving pants no. at the sight of a man being turned into a monkey. the same thing. Honestly, one of the uh, weird experiences I had watching this movie was uh, when he turns into a chimp, he still has a wedding ring. And in my mind, I was thinking... That, that poor Jim lady. That she just lost her husband. And babies, kids, like, anybody. I, I know he's a douche, but maybe he's just trying to provide for his family. <laughs> Good Lord. She's lost a husband and gained a prize. <laughs> I wonder if her insurance covers that. Maybe husband turned into monkey. Does that count? <laughs> Uh, another film that uh, this reminded me of, actually, which is, again, what feels like a better Super Mario Brothers film, is The Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Oh, because my God. all of their experiences in Pepperland are just as surreal and crazed and, and, and at the same time make a strange kind of sense where it's like, well, apples, if you dump big apples on someone, they turn to stone. So it, it has it follows the same crazy logic of the, the Mario games. Yes. Uh, going off of what you said, I, I do think that to make a better movie out of this, you do need moments of kind of respite where there was something nice to enjoy in that world where it's an alternate universe, but it's not, it, it's like they didn't quite make a line between whether this was dystopian or not. And, and there's must be a reason for this princess to want to stay. There must be hope here. So if there was an, a moment where Luigi kind of experiences that and maybe resonates with it and wants to stay and make this his home that I, I don't know. I feel like you would connect a little more to this film and have that bittersweet moment at the end, like you were describing. So just going off of that. Um, I'm, 
I'm racking my brains to think of films that that would have that level of innocence to them because you pretty much have to play it straight. And honestly, a film that came out the year beforehand and had a combination of this sort of beauty and playing it straight and earnest, but at the same time it was funny and was just eye-popping and just felt like a giant party. Disney's Aladdin. The, the the idea that, you know, effectively Aladdin and Jasmine are totally just like going through this adventure and Genie is there to be fun and funny. Right. And you could totally do that in a Mario Brothers movie, even in live action. It's just right. that at the time they were so, they had such cold feet about what they could and couldn't do. And that if you were aiming a certain level of earnestness, it was going to be for babies and not for adults at all. They just hadn't figured out that you could get that, that smartness as well they didn't even figure it out in 2000 when shrek was like yeah screw disney it's all about (laughs) corporate stuff this is the ogre that fox sorry (laughs) not wrong but yeah the donkey that fucks yes (laughs) shrek episode for uh talking about that and then and yeah they've it's been a long long time of not really being able to do things in in earnest, like the whole the 1980s, pretty much saw to that. Like you, you, there were films like Never Ending Story that came out, but they didn't, you know, bust huge at the bank. And uh, you know, the I suppose the only couple of films that really did did have that total earnestness were like The Little Mermaid in 1989, and and you know, it really did feel like if Disney had gotten their hands on this and done it properly they were some of the only people who could have guided it in the right directions in a way that people would accept. And even Disney were losing at times. Like just a couple of years before this, they lost big time from their totally earnest rescuers down under to Home Alone, this kid-powered, let's electrocute burglars, kids versus adult farce in live action. And that seemed to be what everyone liked. And... Hollywood is very good at just trying to steer things towards what people like, and this movie was oversteered. I could have seen the Harold Ramis version working, the, the mm. earlier version of this. You could have gotten some some of that Ghostbusters energy in this. Mm. Some, I know he didn't direct that, but... Well, you also brought up Home Alone when we were watching this, Reese, when you are talking about the, the two uh, Spike and Iggy. They, uh, yeah. def- they definitely had that vibe, the Home Alone. Just without the clever writing to back them up. Exactly. For sure. Mm. I suppose there was John, John Hughes could do one with like two Mario kids, like yeah. the the Mario prequel. Like this is throw a prom night in there, the Mushroom Kingdom. A prom night and a clever kiss, and you'll have a good John Hughes movie. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean that's that pretty much wraps us up on uh, Super Mario Brothers. We will get one again uh, in the future. I feel like we're gonna cover uh, Street Fighter at some point, the uh, Van Damme one. I kind of. If we do, I also want to do the anime as well, because it's like, here's how you do it right. I mean, not brilliantly, it's still very, like, (laughs) you know, bogged down by a lot of anime tropes. Uh, And here is totally the wrong way to do a Street Fighter movie. Um, (laughs) We'll cover that then. Again, it suffered from dreadful embarrassment at its own source material. And at that point, why are you even bothering? Like, you are the wrong people for the job if you are embarrassed by what you've been given. So... That's that pretty much does it for Super Mario Brothers. To our guests, where can our listeners find your show and what is it about? Yeah, so uh, our show is called Franchise Killer. Uh, it's a show where we break down movie franchises. Each episode covers its a, a, a movie from that franchise. Uh, 
usually dead or dormant franchises. So we, we kind of actually leave it open, though, because we like to talk about as many movies as we possibly yeah. can. So we've we've definitely covered a couple franchises that will get <laughs> yeah. For instance, How do you feel about reboots? Soldier? <laughs> well, for instance, Pirates of the Caribbean. That's mm, yeah. still iffy. Obviously but, coming. Yeah. Uh, oh, there's, a, there's a Margot Robbie reboot coming for that one. That's yeah, I'm sure that's exciting. Yeah. For- yes, teasing the uh, the girl power in that one. I heard. So yeah, we'll we'll probably. I'm I'm excited to actually talk about a franchise that comes back from the dead, so to speak, in the future. That'll be interesting. We'll figure appropriate out. that it be parts of the Caribbean. With I the know. <laughs> yeah. So e- each episode, pretty much an in depth breakdown of each movie and then at the end of the franchise we kind of have a post-mortem at the end of that episode and see like kind of where things went wrong and what, what its future it. looks like exactly uh but you can find that fr- uh that podcast on pretty much all streaming services just type in franchise all killer, major ones so yeah so that's franchise killer folks uh david irena and reese thank you so so much you fine folks are coming on Thank you <laughs> Thank so you. much. Thank we're, you, we're Alex. Massive fans of your podcast, by the way. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Really, it, it's surreal hearing y'all's voices actually <laughs> interacting. Yeah, with so, it was, really is. I, was, I know that might sound weird to you, but yeah. my, my, you my heart rate was really high before this, and then uh, <laughs> it was really cool just being able to talk to you guys fantastic oh. thank you it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure and like, really I, I, I was like oh god we're going to end up being really cruel about this film and breaking people's hearts because they care about it but i think we <laughs> kind of i think we were <laughs> firm but fair i think so and for the record even though it didn't come through in the episode at all i don't completely hate this movie like yes. i I know some of y'all were bored by it, but I was like, "Hey, I've seen it twice this week, and I could watch it twice. If that, if I can watch this movie two times in a row in like three days, that's saying something." I I can't follow you there, buddy. (laughs) No, it's one of those things where it's like, I have no idea what what I'm going to turn the corner and see in the Mm. next light. Like, what is gonna like? What is it going to throw at me that's completely ridiculous in the mm. next scene? And it never disappoints in that regard. So. <laughs> there is a slightly timeless aspect to it in this regard. I mean, it's so bad it's good in a way. It is uh, one of those movies that we have. I have a vault of so good they're bad. Or, I mean, so bad they're good. Movies. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Uh, this one I slot right there with the, I would say, like Mac and Me, probably. <laughs> I, I would put this slightly better than Mac and Me, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, probably a little better than Mac and Me. But yeah, uh, there's there's enjoyment to be had here. And there there was the money went into this movie, so it, it shows to some degree. It felt like this one's been a long time coming. And I, I touted it on uh, uh, Twitter as, you know, j- just as a hint as to what we are now going to be covering in the next few weeks. You're never going to believe this, which is their ostentatious way of finishing the, the movie. Like, oh, sequel? It's almost... Like the most, it's almost the most notorious in my head because we Mac movies keep referencing nope, it. No, no, no. Mac and Me has to be the most notorious <laughs> oh, really? for hinting a sequel and not uh, getting one. What did we'll, they be they we'll, we'll be back. They will be back. We'll be back. Oh my gosh! They're driving away, and there's a little speech bubble that says "We'll be back." And I <laughs> no, remember the won't. first time I watched it, I was like, "Oh God, no!" <laughs> Narrator voice. <laughs> they were not back. <laughs> Oh, mind you, actually thinking about it, uh, the canon version of Master of the Universe at the very, very end, 
um, rather than getting a visit from a Japanese businessman, Frank Langella's Skeletor pokes his head back into frame and goes, I'll be back. Like, no. to make a quote, <laughs> he also was not back. <laughs> Even though they had planned a sequel. But yeah, now Samantha um, Mathis does turn up and, and, and like with a flamethrower and, go, and goes, you're never going to believe this. And we don't know what happened, folks. But uh, right, it was probably better than this film. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's a ballsy move. It's a ballsy move to say that. <laughs> but especially like it seems like she's now leading the charge. So it's like Daisy has now stepped up and is now you know larger in charge. And she, so the Mario Brothers are gonna be following her. I'd watch that movie. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, where are you gonna go from here? Yeah, and Yoshi's finally grown to full size, and he's pissed, and he can eat people. <laughs> full blown T Rex Yoshi. I love that. Yoshi. Have, have Yoshi be like blue in uh, the Jurassic World films. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, oh no, I can't do the whole thing like Bob Hoskins. Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Luigi, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy. This isn't Bob Hoskins, this is Rupert Murdoch. Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner. I'm, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it like Mario. And if I did, I'd go, it's me, Mario, Dave Hickman. David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we will be back keeping you folks entertained throughout 2021, starting with Super 8, followed by a trilogy of Bill and Ted's most excellent adventures. And have a beautiful morning in old London town. Here comes the baker's boy with his delicious fresh warm buns. Morning, Mr. Hoskins. Good morning, son. Here comes lovely Lily the flower seller. Morning, Mr. Hoskins. Good morning, Lily. You're as pretty as the morning sun. Thank you kindly, Mr. Hoskins. And look over there. There's the hurdy-gurdy man. Morning, Mr. Hoskins. And if it isn't the pearly king and queen themselves. Good morning, Mr. Hoskins. Good morning, your royal highnesses. Mr. Hoskins, tell us the story about the making of Super Mario Brothers, please. Nah, you've heard them all a thousand times before. Then sing us a song, Mr. Hoskins. All right, but on one condition. What, Mr. Hoskins? Anything. But from now on, you all call me Bobo. Sing us a song, Bobo. Right, you are. Wow! Tickle me fancy, have a banana, wallop a log, rubble a bush. Apples and pears, scramble me nuts, I'm off to step into waggle me brush. Round me spoonies, nibble me dog, shiver me timbers, call on the cock. Shuffle me bockies, tackle me tits, toy me pipkins, middle me nits. Bollies me bullies, apples and pears, buckets of fun and a barrel of logs. Naughty old Nancy, slapping her knees, saucy old Sally, jelly me eels. Long me good Friday, ragging me rawny, watching me rabbit, moaning me leaves, a bock on me coppers. Me stick, spanking the eye, but just give a tease. 
Mr. Oskins? Yes, yes. go on, Mr. Oskins! Nah, sorry, folks. That's enough for today. Oh, please, Bobo! Now, now, children. Mr. Oskins has got work to do. We've heard you've agreed to appear in a low-budget film for only tuppence an hour. That's right, and I'm going to be late if I don't hurry up. God bless you, Mr. Oskins. You're one in a million. God bless you, too. Be lucky. Goodbye! Goodbye, Mr. Oskins! <sighs> what a perfect morning. Ooga booga! If there's one thing I wish we, I would have included, I meant to, was asking you to do a, a uh, Brooklyn accent, Alex. Your American, accent. Accent. Your American accents are my favorite thing when I hear it. You're so good at them. Can yeah. I hear oh. it? I, now I feel really <laughs> under... I go, the, the, you know, no, no, I just sound like you. Joey and friends go, hey, forget about it. Like, that's Italian-American. <laughs> the thing is, we're American and we can't do it. At least I can't do it. You no, should no, hear no. my accents. They're Joey, terrible. Joey should be a, how you doing? How you doing? Mm, how you doing? I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised. We used to play stickball down the street and, you know, da dance in the fire hydrants when it was hot. And when my mother would make her favorite gugats, the mess she made of the kitchen, let me tell you, Gallagher, that putts would wish. And I've just realized I'm doing Kevin Pollock doing Christopher Walken. Either way, I love Mario. The one thing in this movie that I can probably do the, the voice for and that actually established something that's real and that kind of pervaded in the Mario world is that they're called uh, uh, Mario Mario, he's Luigi Mario. Like they've, <laughs> they're called Mario. the Super Mario Brothers because their surname is Mario and it's like, that's annoying, but it kind of makes sense. Oh man, that's another thing I meant to bring up because uh, we were researching right before we even got on, like five minutes before, but I looked that up and apparently Nintendo recently was like, yeah, that's their names now. Like, we're, this is the Mario. first case of this. And then they took it. Nintendo actually says their full names Mario Mario and Luigi Mario. Didn't they take that back though? No, no, no. They originally didn't say anything on it and people started using it after this movie. But then later, came back and Nintendo's like, yeah, his name's Mario Mario. Like, if you go on Wikipedia, <laughs> his name is Mario Mario. Well, like I said, that's the, the one thing that kind of pervaded. And thinking about it, I'm just imagining how bad a 90s Zelda movie would have been. I'm actually so glad they didn't make it. It's, there's still a possibility of them doing something like that now. Netflix live-action Zelda show or something like that? Oh, I could be on board with that. Yeah. The music, at least, would be amazing. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it definitely was. Not too long. <laughs> Please say it's not got this dark, grim, Witcher, Game of Thrones aesthetic. Sorry, so, it's, it's Paul W.S. Anderson, sorry. I don't sorry. know what you guys <laughs> think about Witcher, but I do not like it. I'm, uh, I'm I like tired. it. I like I'm it. I'm tired of it. I just... <laughs> It, it feels half-assed, in I, my opinion. I don't like the structure of it. I don't like the time jumps, but I, I do enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, we might be digressing at the Sorry. end of this. <laughs> I do not care for The Witcher. It insists upon itself. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, I, I got, got tired of the Game of Thrones aesthetic a, a while back, and just the amount of uh, programming that came out with that same muted palette and the sort of miserable kind of Viking look to it. I was like, oh, God, how long are we stuck with this? I, I just thought it was hilarious that they released that and people couldn't stop comparing it to Game of Thrones and they kept insisting it's not like Game of Thrones, okay? It's Except different. for it is. <laughs> really like Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's not like Game of Thrones, it's really like It also like suffers Game of from a similar thing to Mario where, where it's like they denied that it was uh, related to the video game. They're like, no, it's based off the books. 
I'm like, oh, that's what? so much better. <laughs> One thing I realized after I finished the edit on this was that when I listened to uh, We Hate Movies performing an old animation damnation on an episode of Super Mario Brothers Super Show called Flatbush Cooper, I kind of had a, a revelation. I realized how insanely influential that now thankfully forgotten rubbishy cartoon was on this movie. Let's look at the evidence. Originally released as 52 episodes September through December in 1989, well in advance of the script of this being made. The same year as Super Mario Bros. 3 was released in Japan on the Famicom, but crucially in arcades in America shortly before the early 1990 NES release. This show was, it should be noted, followed a year later by 26 episodes of The Adventures of Super Mario Bros. 3, which doesn't even make grammatical sense. Executive producer Steve Binder, director of the Star Wars Holiday Special 11 years earlier, opening theme, plumber rap, and end theme, do the Mario, performed by Captain Lou Albano, who voices Mario along with Danny Wells as Luigi. Let's hear some of that now. Oh, let's do. Hey, paisanos, it's the Super Mario Brothers Super Show! We're the Mario Brothers, and plumbing's a game. We're not like the others who get all the fame. If your sink is in trouble, you can call us on the double. We're faster than the others, you'll be hooked on the brothers. So hang on to your seat Get ready for adventure and remarkable feats You'll meet the Koopas and Troopas The Princess and the others Hanging with the plumbers You'll be hooked on the brothers to the Yes, this is the whitest thing you've ever heard but it starts each episode in the quote-unquote real world with your standard live-action sitcom bit packed with canned laughter at gags which aren't funny because TV was shit back then, especially for kids. It's Mrs. Gamblers up in apartment 5C. She thinks she's an opera singer. Listen to what a singing does to kids and cows. She's gonna sing the whole opera. What are we gonna do? I'll tell you what we're gonna do, Mario. We're gonna pray for intermission. Then they go down the plug hole into the sewer and become cartoons, exactly like we suggested earlier in this show. So, you've got these two very distinct worlds, and they're Brooklyn plumbers in the one of them. So it's like, that's canon. That feels like that's where Mario came from and it doesn't get complicated until Yoshi's Island and then you've got like baby Luigi and baby Mario being carted around by a dinosaur and his buddies and it's like so so, so how do they get to Brooklyn I've never finished it maybe you folks can tell me and down there in the TV show there's Cooper as King not Bowser and you get more of an accurate animated rendition of the Mushroom Kingdom than in the movie although it still looks like garbage. There's also a deadly bomb before they go back to the real world, although it's not wearing Reeboks for no reason like the one in the movie. Obviously, there was a reason, sponsorship. Honestly, it seems less like the makers of this film played the games and came up with how they could convey that to audiences everywhere through a layer of cinematic de-abstraction, and more like they watched a few episodes of this cartoon, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, that should have been flushed like a 
toyed halfway through the pilot, and then they turned that into an edgy, weird pre-Flintstones movie, because they were obsessed with dinosaurs, which was kind of a sex romp in a cement factory, with everything just festooned in mushroom jizz. <laughs> but here's the thing, every time I mention the Super Mario Bros. movie on Twitter, someone else steps forward and either declares reluctantly with shame or boisterously and proud that they love this movie. Personally, I feel like it set the template for video game adaptations all wrong at its earliest stage, and Hollywood was poorly calibrated to compensate for nearly three decades afterwards. But the odds were that that was going to happen anyway, because directors did not play Nintendo games. They could barely understand that when a Game Boy was on screen in those days, and a kid was playing on it, that you need a visible cartridge in the back. They weren't the right generation to convey this medium. Now they are. But if this daft financial and critical failure still bought some kids joy, and they still feel that, then it did some good, despite all the odds against it. And for that, it deserves a little credit. Have yourself a green mushroom. Do the Mario! Swing your arms from side to side. Come on, it's time to go. Do the Mario. Take one step, and then again, let's do the Mario all together now. Back in the 90s, I was in a very So we shall close out this episode in the exact same way as the Super Mario Brothers movie, giving absolute full credit to the band that sings the song at the end. So this is Roxette with Almost Unreal and School's Out.
soap operas are in 